0: Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you that we can gather together in the name of Christ. That means we gather together accepted and beloved in Christ, not because of our own works. And Lord, thinking about the testimony that Will gave, we thank you that you have saved us from uh, self-made religion, saved us out of a life of legalism. We don't have to try to worry about keeping a law uh, to make ourselves acceptable to you Because first, you have made us acceptable in Christ. And then you free us to actually give us desires where we want to obey you. And we're able to love you, to give you the true obedience that you desire. That is, we love you, and we desire you, and we delight in you. You've enabled us to have that kind of relationship with you. Lord, we thank you for the church family that you've placed us in. We thank you for the evidence of grace that we see in one another's lives. We thank you for um, the conversations that that center around your word that happen in homes and over Facebook and on the telephone throughout the week. Lord, we thank you how the church family gives generously as well. We thank you that you've met the needs that we have as a church. We pray that you would continue to do that. Lord, give us a desire that we would would give to you to further your kingdom because the gospel is the most important thing in the world your word is the strongest force in the universe and our lives in everything we do should be centered around that so lord help us to believe that and to want to further your gospel in all areas of life our lives so make us faithful in evangelism lord give us a burden for people's souls and a burden for your glory that we would want your glory from every person on the face of the earth that that they would praise you and that we would see the need for that. In heaven, worship will be all, all around us. It will be what we do perpetually, forever, and it will be so good. Lord, give us a burden that we would bring your gospel to people that more may come to know you through through Christ. Lord, we thank you that we're not the only church in the area that's preaching your gospel. We thank you for Burtonsville Baptist Church, Pastor Justin who is there. We pray that you would uh, work in his ministry, that he would faithfully share your word, and you would grow that church, around your gospel, to your praise and your glory. Lord, we pray that you would uh, bring more people to know you through our ministry as a church too. We pray that we'd hear great testimonies uh, through people being baptized, they have come to faith in you, and they would uh, give glory to Christ through their testimony. We pray we'd see the evidence of your Holy Spirit working among us. And Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, give us this gift of illumination by your Spirit that your word would uh, penetrate into our lives. And we would not just be interested in learning new information, but we would sit under your word as you instruct us and you encourage us. And your word is a means of life because you are present in it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start by uh, giving you a a few brief stories that are all based on real events that I've heard or seen And I want you to consider what is the common thread that runs throughout these stories. First story, a man has fixed a meal for his family. It's a meal he's been looking forward to. He tries to gather his family around to eat it, but they're slow in coming, so he gets irritated. And then during the meal, he barely engages in conversation because he's so focused on enjoying the food. Second story, a woman finds herself irresistibly drawn to McDonald's chicken nuggets. She drives past the McDonald's, and it's like the Golden Arches. Just tell her, come, come. And she obeys. Uh, And she rationalizes that her doctor has told her that actually they're reasonably healthy. but Then later on she thinks, they can't be healthy to the degree that I'm consuming them. Another story. A pastor, the sermon I heard, uh, preaches a sermon in which he chides the congregation for eating food, not because they... Uh, need it, but simply because they are enjoying it. And he tells them it's sinful to enjoy their food. They should eat, not for pleasure, but so they have energy to serve God. A woman looks in a mirror, and though she can count every rib, she thinks of herself as fat, and she starves herself because she has a hunger to control her body. A high school girl sneaks pounds of chocolate into her room, and then after she's had a bad day at school, she gorges herself and then throws up in the bathroom. What do these stories all have in common? They have an unbiblical and an unhealthy view of food. And I think uh, most of us, not all of us, can find some aspect of our lives overlapping with one or more of these stories. I mean, we all have a temptation probably to overeat. Some of us have a temptation to undereat. We all have that comfort food that maybe comforts us in ways that are not healthy. We, we put food above God. And it's not surprising that we would struggle with that, and given what our culture is like that we live in. I mean, think about it. You turn on the TV... And what do you see? You see advertisements for food, and it looks really good, it, especially if it's frozen food. It never looks that good when you open the package. You, know, you open it. This is what that is on the cover, but, but it looks really good, and often in the commercials, the people who are eating it are happy, and it sends that message, if you eat this food, you will be happy too. You want to be happy, so that's a message that we like, so we accept it. And that's particularly ironic in light of the other message that our culture sends, which is, unless you look like this really skinny model, you're not going to be happy. And, and we're, we're confused. We can't believe both of them, so we, no wonder we have a struggle in this area. Now, why are we talking about this? Why did I give that introduction for the sermon? Uh, is this really going to be a message that's going to center on food? Well, yes, it is, actually. Uh, and that's because... Food is a very important part of our lives. We we do it constantly, right? A day doesn't go by where, I just forgot to eat today. No, you you do it all the time. Um, And actually, it's really a part of the Bible, too. So much of the Bible has to do with food. It's really amazing. And this actually relates to our study of uh, the book of Philippians. We're going through the book of Philippians. Keith preached a great sermon last week. And one of the verses that he just touched on in the flow of the larger passage that he was talking about was verse 19. And a phrase in verse 19 says, their God is their belly. Or other versions, I think maybe a little bit more accurately translate it, their God is their appetite. And this is the context where Paul is describing the character of certain unbelievers who are headed for destruction. And he says, part of their character is this... This insatiable appetite, this desire for pleasure, and this, that desire rules them. So what I thought would be helpful this morning is if we zero in on that phrase, their God is their appetite, and get a better understanding of what that experience is like. And in doing that, I hope also not just to see what you know, the negative experience is like, but then we can say what does it look like for the living Redeemer to come into our lives and transform those experiences so that we desire him, and he is our life, and that's what we want. So we're going to see three things in this phrase. One, that food is a good gift from God. That's part of the sermon, too, to be excited about, okay? It's not just something negative here. Two, food, like everything else, can be used wrongly. And three, Christ redeems our use of food by creating in us a longing for something greater. So first, food is a good gift from God. Now, first of all, we have to see what Paul is not saying in this passage. When he's describing these people on the road to destruction, he doesn't say that their problem is that they have a belly or have an appetite. No, that desire for food is not what marks them as on the road to destruction. Um, It's not bad simply because they want it. What's wrong here is that they've made it their God. Their God is their appetite. Their God is their belly. It's the, the status that they've assigned to it. Food, in its proper place, is a good gift from God. In order to see that, let me just take a really quick survey of the Bible. You, tell the, you can tell the story of the Bible in several different ways. Quick survey of the Bible from the perspective of food it's all over the place. You begin in, the Bible begins in a garden where God has provided everything, and the trees look good for food. And it's this garden that he waters himself, and it's luscious, and it's green, and it's the kind of place where you love to be, and just just eat the fruit, and eat the food, and it is good. God created that uh, to bless his people. And then if we look at the very end of the Bible, what do we see? We see a wedding banquet. That's how heaven is described, as a feast. I don't think that's just... Metaphorical. I think there's actually going to be a feast in heaven because Jesus, before he leaves his disciples, tells them that he will eat this meal with, him, uh, with them uh, uh, anew in the kingdom. So there will be a feast. There's food in the beginning, food in the end, and it's described as good. And then think about how it's all through the middle. God came to Abraham and ate a meal with him. God commands the Passover meal. God provides manna out of heaven to feed the Israelites in the wilderness. The promised land is described as a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, that's descriptions of it being good, tasting good there. The New Testament, so much of what Jesus did revolved around food. We have the fish, we have the loaves, we have the wine. He's accused of eating with sinners and tax collectors. And in the resurrection body, one of the main things we see him doing is eating. And he gives a meal uh, meal to remember his sacrifice that we're going to partake of today. And and here's where I think it's most interesting. Our spiritual life in Scripture is described with the analogy of food. It's, It's in Psalm 63 that Isaac read for us. As David says, my soul will be satisfied. Here he's talking about satisfaction in God. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So just as a good meal provides that sense of satisfaction, doesn't it? God is descri- David describes his relationship with God as meeting that need, as, as satisfying him, essentially. And in the context there, it is God's loving kindness that satisfies David. God's loving kindness is David's comfort food, you could say. And the Psalms tell us to taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, Food would not be used as an analogy for our relationship with God if food were not good. No, our our need for food and our desire for food and the satisfaction that we have in food all point us to the reality of our relationship with God. And this emphasis on food all throughout the Bible shouldn't surprise us when you consider that the Bible was written for us humans who live in a real world, in a real body that gets hungry and needs food. Or it will die. I think as Christians, we sometimes overlook the body because we have this wrong idea that to be spiritual means that we don't give any attention to our body. That, that's an error that came from the early church. It started out, you can even see it, battling it in the Bible. It's called Gnosticism. It's the idea that the body isn't important. And, and we should just, if we give ourselves to spiritual things, we won't pay any attention to our body. And, and, that's, and that's wrong. The body is important, and God uses that to help us understand our relationship with God. Uh, Here's an example of where I think somebody went wrong. Uh, Many years ago, I was helping a church in Canada do outreach to the Canadian Indians that are up there. And I walked around all day with an older, mature believer. We were knocking on doors, inviting people to a certain event, and having great conversations. And I really respected this mature believer in many ways. He was one of the first people to to share his struggle with, about sin with me. And I remember as just a young man being impressed by that. He's, if he struggles with sin, I think I probably always will too. So that was helpful for me. But, but at one point, I remember I made a comment after walking around for a good part of the day. I said, I'm hungry. And then he told me that I should be hungry for the Word. And I thought, well, you know what? I should be, but but it doesn't take away the fact that I can be physically hungry as well. And we shouldn't resist that need for food simply with the idea of being spiritual. Because God wants to teach us something with our need for food. He wants to teach us our dependency upon him. You see, it's very clear in scripture that food comes from God. I think we are removed from that a little bit in our culture today where you go right down to the store and buy it. But yet... God provides it he makes the things grow he brings the rain and even today there could be something that actually dries up our source of food and it doesn't matter how much money you have you, you can't get any of it I mean, that could happen God is the one who provides the food and we are at his mercy for it and we need the food So that tells us something about our relationship with God. In a very real sense, daily He is supplying our need. And that teaches us our dependency upon Him. We need Him to meet that very real need that we have uh, or we'll die. Psalm 145 tells us that He opens His hands and satisfies the desire of every living thing. It's a picture of God providing the food that we have and what we need. You know, I think... uh, Parents especially can appreciate this, how, you know, if we have young children in the house, particularly as they're, you know, getting to that point where they're, well, really, from the point they're born, they need the parents to put the food in their mouth or they'll die, right? I mean, they can't eat on their own. Their, their arms, hands don't work to be able to put the, uh, the food in their mouths. They need somebody else to supply their their food to their mouths or they're just not going to make it, um, and that really reinforces that relationship of dependency from the child to the parent. You know, the, the child is dependent upon the parent. And friends, in that similar way, that's how we should think about our relationship with God. We need him to supply our food. And that tells us how dependent we are upon him. And I think that gives new meaning to the idea of praying before our meals. That it shouldn't be something we just, okay, go through the motions, yes, we need to thank God for our food. We should really realize that, that this is what God has provided for us. This is how he meets our needs. And it is a, an illustration of how we are dependent upon him for everything. So think about it. When you pray before meals, do you, do you have that sense of God meeting your needs and real appreciation for him? Or are you just kind of going through the motions? But, you know, the other thing we see is that the pleasure that we have in food is not unscriptural either. That's a very real thing. I mean, think about it. God could have created a world in such that we need food, and he supplies that food, but it, you know, doesn't really do anything for us. It just is there, and we eat it, and we have energy, but it doesn't taste good. Instead, God decided to meet that very real need that we have with something that is very pleasurable. Isn't it? It doesn't. What does that tell us about the character of the God we serve? It tells us that God is interested in our pleasure. God is described in the Bible as a happy God. God has pleasure. He rejoices over his son. He rejoices over his creation. He rejoices within himself. God is happy. He created us in his image for pleasure. And he gave us food as one source of that. That says something about the character of the God we serve. And we kind of see this in the Bible. Think about there was a time when God just provided sustenance and not actual pleasure in food. That was to the Israelites. They were, they were in the wilderness, and God provided manna uh, from heaven. Now, this supplied their need, but apparently it w- was kind of boring after a while. But they longed for the land flowing with milk and honey to which they were going. And that longing was a good longing that God encouraged them to have. We read the, the book of Ecclesiastes. There's this constant refrain: "Enjoy your food, enjoy your drink, rejoice in them as good gifts from God." Now, the pleasure we have in God is not something that I mean, pleasure we have in food is not something that is unscriptural. We're wrong. I think it was uh, Pastor John Calvin who suggested that we ought not to pray just before we eat; we ought to pr- pray after we eat as a way of, you know, thanking God. For the food that we enjoyed. And I think that's part of the idea. That the the pleasure in it is something that's actually good. I told some people that I was going to preach a message on food. And sometimes they're like, oh, that's going to be where he tells us not to eat too much. And we'll get to some of that eventually. But but part of the application, I think part of our Christian discipleship. Is actually taking the pleasure in food that God has given for us. That God has meant us to, to use as a way of thanking him for it. I mean... I think the Christians should be the ones who have the most pleasure in food. Because we, of all people, realize what it is. A gift from our Heavenly Father for our good. I mean, think about it this way. Uh, imagine two girls go to school wearing the exact same necklace. One of them picked it up at a flea market for a few dollars. Eh, doesn't really appreciate it that much. The other one was given, it was given to her by her father who gave it to her as he wrote a card for her expressing his love for her. Who's going to have more enjoyment from the necklace? The girl who realizes it's a gift from her father, right? Well, in that same way, as we enjoy our food, uh, enjoy our coffee, enjoy whatever it is that, that delights you, think of it as a good gift from your heavenly father who has given it to you as an expression of his love. And enjoy it that way that it points you to his glory and his love for his people. So food is not the problem. The pleasure in food is not the problem. It's part of God's plan. The problem is when it it becomes our God. When instead of seeing it as a good gift from God, we we worship the food. The desire for it is what controls us. And see, that's point number two, that we can use food like anything else uh, can, um, can be a problem. That's the main problem with these people here. Their God is their belly. Their God is their appetite. And, and I think it's helpful to put this, uh, this idea, this, this problem, in the overall context of the passage we looked at. Remember what Keith talked about last week. Uh, Paul here is describing in this passage two different groups of people. There are the people who are enemies of the cross. That means they're not Christians. They've rejected Christ. And they are headed for destruction. And and that means that there is a real destruction for those who reject Christ. And this is put in contrast with those whose end is glory, who will be transformed in the image of Christ. Paul is describing two groups of people going to two different destinations, all based on what they do with Christ. Those who embrace Christ are headed for glory to be transformed into his image. Those who reject Christ are headed for destruction. That's a sobering reality that we must take into account. One that should spur us to trust in God and to evangelize, both of them. Um, but but this, this God is their belly idea is what characterizes the group of people who are headed for destruction. Those who are on their way to destruction are marked because their desire for food is what rules them. It's not healthy. Uh, and we see that all throughout the Bible. You think about the original sin that God put Adam and Eve in a garden, a beautiful garden, but he told them that one tree was off limits. Now, this tree looked good for food like all the other trees did. And therefore, it would have had a natural appeal to it. But God's plan was that his word would rule their hearts. And they wouldn't go to it because of what his word said. His word, he would have been God and there, his authority would have guided their lives over and against what they would have desired. But no, they didn't. They, they let their desire rule them. We see that in the way the Bible describes Esau. He is described as a godless man who sold his inheritance rights for a single meal. Now, you don't need to know if you don't remember much about that story. That's okay. But his inheritance rights were connected with God's redemptive plan, and and he was saying that it is more important to fill his belly than be part of God's redemptive plan. The desire to to satisfy our desires, uh, if that rules us, we're not in a good place. You see, God has gives us desires. But his plan is that they are under his authority. So those desires, while real, never legitimize going after what we want when it's outside of God's will. Those desires are there. They're part of God's plan. But they don't ever make it right for us to go after something that God has said we ought not to go after. Uh, C.S. Lewis said something great about this in uh, his book, The Screwtape Letters. I've put that on your notes. This is an interesting book, and I've got to warn you before I read a, a section of it, that... It's written from the perspective, it's a you know, fictional book, but it's written from the perspective of one demon writing to another demon about how to trip up the Christians. Okay, So when it talks about the enemy in here, the enemy is God. Um, you just got to understand that. And it's a great book. It, you really would enjoy it, I think. But here's what it says. Uh, here's one demon writing to another demon. And never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, We are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now, the enemy is who? God, right? He's making the point that God is the source of all good pleasures. Pleasure isn't something that Satan has a corner on the market on, God does. Now, he goes on I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is encourage humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times, or in ways, or in degrees, which he has forbidden. Hence, we are always trying to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that which is least natural, least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. See the point there? When used in the context in which God gave it, pleasure is something good, and pleasure is something that we can give God glory for and give God thanks for. It's designed to help us in our relationship with Him, but take it outside of God's plan. And two things happen. It doesn't bring God glory, and it's not nearly as satisfying. I I love that phrase at the end, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's what happens when we take the pleasures out of God's plan for them. And think about, you You probably know what this is like. Say you, uh, you, you have a, perhaps you like chocolate mousse cake or something. It's not something I particularly like, but perhaps you like it. The, you, you take a bite of it, and that first bite, it's an experience. It's an experience that takes your mind off the cares of life. You forget about the unpaid bills. You forget about the f- fight you just had with your spouse. You even forget what the cake is at that moment doing to your body. But then the experience is over. And you don't want it to be over. So you take another bite. But you do that with even more anticipation. And see, the thing is, though, uh, the pleasure in that first bite came often from how it was surprisingly good. But now you know what it's going to be like. So it doesn't have the same effect. But you still want that experience. So you eat it, and you eat more, and you eat more, and you eat more. And you have this ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And you're on the path to destruction. I heard an alcoholic interviewed on the radio one day. It was a fascinating interview. And she talked about how the essence of her desire for a drink was to get back to the very first experience she had with the drink. It was wonderful and the way she remembers it. She wants to repeat that experience. So She's always trying, always trying, always trying to repeat it. And in the end, she is destroying herself because she has this greater craving and that the thing that she goes to could never satisfy her. Now, how do you know the difference between enjoying a pleasure to the glory of God and letting that pleasure rule you? Well, two things. One, is the pleasure your refuge? See, see here's what it means. The ple- if, the God, God is, if your appetite turns into God, you're going to go to that thing whatever you want, not just because you enjoy it, but it's as a refuge because you're made for a refuge. That refuge is God, but when you've replaced God with something else, you go to that thing, whatever it is, with a sense of needing it and craving it. Not just that you want it and will enjoy it, it's that it, it meets a fundamental need in your life. You want that comfort that it provides and you don't know what to do if you don't have it. So question to ask about any pleasure, is it your refuge? Is it what you're going to to escape from reality? Second, does it rule you? Can you say no? So the minute you can't say no, and particularly if you look over the course of your life and you see that you never say no, and you, you, know, you, you might think afterwards, well, I'll say no next time. But yet you see 350 times where you haven't. You know, If that's the reality where it rules you, it doesn't matter what it is, all of a sudden you, you realize there's something wrong in your relationship with God. Because actually... That is becoming God. You are obeying it. You want to know what what is God in your life? Just answer the question, what do you obey? And if you obey your desires every time, all the time, then those desires have become God. And that's a problem. And you have to realize that, that it's not, particularly if it's food, the problem, the first problem, isn't in how you might look or what it's doing to your body. That's not where the deepest part of the problem lies. The deepest part of the problem lies in your relationship with God. It's in your heart. So when you eat something for pleasure to a degree that you ought not to, ask yourself the question, what is ruling my heart? Am I going to this, you know, craving it in a way that really I should be going to God for? What's ruling my heart? It'll give you insight into your relationship with God. And like I said before, my encouragement, don't begin. If you, if you think, okay, I want to I look at how I eat and what I eat, and, and I want to take that and, and grow in that area, and don't just begin with you know, weight loss goals. Begin with what's ruling really my heart. Look at your heart and your relationship with God. I mean, think of this. What, what matters more, people's opinion of you on the outside or what God thinks of you? What God thinks of you, right? And we learn in the Bible that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So it's ultimately a heart issue that you have to be most concerned about. And also, what you look like on the outside often is not an accurate representation of our hearts. And certain people have a really slow metabolism, and it really doesn't matter how much they count calories. They're just never going to look like the model on the magazine cover. It's just not going to happen. Well, friends, that's Okay. Because how we look on the outside really doesn't matter that much. What matters is what God sees in our hearts. And does he have our hearts? Are they inclined to him? Or you might have a super fast metabolism and you're skinny as a beanpole, but your heart is so wrong in this area. And you're going after other things instead of God. Maybe for you, the appetite isn't for food that you struggle with. Maybe it's sex. God has given a specific boundary of where sex is legitimate, and it's in marriage. And God has said even in there that the focus should be on when pleasing your spouse. Maybe your God is the desire for pornography. That's a false refuge that many people can have, and that's a huge heart issue. We should look at our hearts. Why are our hearts going to something that God has forbidden? Maybe it's something something else that can seem more benign, like video games or the amount of TV that you watch. Or maybe it's intense exercise. Uh, I did that for years. I didn't seek the high that might come from food. It was the uh, you know, runner's high, so to speak, that, that exercise. Now, friends, that's going to be a lot better for your body, but no better for your soul. It's ultimately a heart issue. The problem isn't with food or sex or video games or exercise. All those things can be good, used in their proper place. The problem is, when Lewis, as Lewis says, when we use them at times or in ways Or in degrees that God has forbidden. At that point, we are acting like somebody who is on the road to destruction. But friends, if you are a believer, you are not on the road to destruction. If you are a believer in Christ, if you've trusted in the gospel, verse 20 of this passage says that your citizenship is in heaven. You are a citizen for heaven. You are in Christ. You are on the road to glory. So friends, act like somebody is on the road to glory. Become who you already are. Our third point, lastly and briefly, is that God redeems our use of food by creating in us a longing for something greater. Let me give you an illustration. This past Monday, beautiful day, I took our kids to Washington, D.C., and we walked around the art gallery and uh, spent a good part of our day out. We came home, brought the kids home, and I was really hungry. So then we all as a family went out to a restaurant. And and I love that experience, maybe you've had it, of being in a restaurant that you enjoy and being really hungry. You've decided what you want, you've you've ordered it, you know it's coming, you're hungry, you can't wait for it to come. You know you're going to be satisfied when it comes, and you're just waiting for it. And you have this strange experience of being satisfied and not satisfied at the same time. It's a fun experience because you're longing for what you know will come very soon and you will be satisfied But yet, at the same time, you would be very disappointed if all of a sudden you left the restaurant and you never got the food, right? You you, you you are kind of satisfied with the anticipation of what's going to happen. Well, friends, that's sort of like how we are now with Christ. Look at what Paul says here. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. That's what we wait for. And the satisfaction we have in Christ now is sort of like that satisfaction you have in the restaurant, where you can smell it, you know it's coming, you're looking forward to it, but it's not quite here yet. That's the kind of satisfaction we have in Christ. And, friends, that's important to know because the satisfaction we have in Christ isn't like that fully consuming it right now. There's a sense where it's not yet. We're waiting, we're waiting, we're waiting. But it will come. And our longing for him is what gives us that sense of satisfaction now that at the same time makes us long for him even more. Note here that when Jesus returns, there will be a bodily aspect to it. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Again, that gets away from that Gnosticism. The body is not important. No, the body is tremendously important. We will have a body like Christ's. And in that body like Christ. We will experience a pleasure in him in a way that we could never experience prior to that. We will then know what it's really like to say with David, my soul is satisfied as with rich food. We will really know what it's like to taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord willing, willing, we will look at Psalm 16 in two weeks. And there's a phrase there in that Psalm that says, in his presence is fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forever. When he returns, then we will experience those pleasures forever. You know, I think one of the reasons, especially as I look at my own heart, why we're tempted to uh, eat too much or drink too much is that we are seeking a pleasure that will never end. We get pleasure out of food, but it's over. And then we want to keep eating it because we don't want that pleasure to end. Now, friends, that desire for a never-ending pleasure is good. God created us for that. But that's never meant to be had on anything that comes from earth. It's meant to be had in him. And when we try to satisfy that desire for a pleasure that never, will never end in something that's given to us on earth, well, then we're going to destroy ourselves. Instead, we must wait for his return. And then he will transform our body into a body like his. So, if, you know, practical uh, application. If you're eating something and you think, I don't want this pleasure to end. Or maybe it's not food, but something else. Remember, it's not this that is going to give me that never-ending pleasure. But I will have that never-ending pleasure. And it will come in Christ. And friends, part of the glory of Christ it's not just that he's beautiful and that he's God and he's holy and glorious. It's his redemption. It's that he has come, God and man in one person, to take upon himself the punishment for what we deserve. He's loving and forgiving. And friends, maybe uh, you've blown it in the food department. You've, you've had that as your, your appetite and you haven't honored God. Or maybe in your sexuality or maybe some other area of your life. Well, friends, what you need to appreciate about about Christ is that he comes to forgive us our sins. And that's part of what makes him so glorious. What makes him taste so good is his redemption and his love. Let me leave you with one more thing before we turn to the Lord's Supper. I said before that I love being in that place in a restaurant where you're hungry, but you're looking forward to the food that will come. Well, the only thing better than doing it by yourself is doing it with a group of people. When you're with other friends and you're all hungry together. And then the, uh, being with other people helps build that anticipation even more. And friends, we are waiting for the return of Christ together. That's why we partake of this meal together with other bl- brothers and sisters in Christ. Looking forward to him and enjoying him. So as we partake of this meal, let our minds be drawn to Christ and his glory. And let us wait for the full satisfaction in him that we will have. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Christ and that he will come. And we pray that our desire for every other thing that you've given us, thank you for the many blessings you've given us in this life, part of your common grace. But we pray none of them will take the place of Christ, who will be the only thing that will truly satisfy us forever. And there we will have an ever-increasing craving for an ever-increasing pleasure in Him. Lord, let the longing for that day purify our lives now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.